Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Carl Fothergill. Carl is the Director of Operations at Angleboard UK, a manufacturer and supplier of cardboard edge protectors and corner protection. Carl, welcome to the programme. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Scott. How are you today? Really good, thanks. As good as can be in the circumstances, um, being um, working from home uh, and, and amid the ensuing disruption. And while we're on the topic of the outbreak, um, it's really brought leadership under the test, hasn't it, this whole thing? How has it been for you over the last uh, couple of weeks in your industry? Because I can imagine there's been quite a lot of disruption there. Yeah, kind of locally at plant level, we've faced several challenges with um kind of supply and demand, really kind of ebbing and flowing depending on the sector that we're, we're delivering into. So as you can imagine, um, from a food and drink point of view, some of our customer requirements have really kind of accelerated. And then some of the what you would class non-essential supply chains have really, really diminished. So kind of finding that balance has been tricky. So from a frontline point of view, from the manufacturing team, we've got a full manufacturing team where possible still working, but under kind of heavy restrictions regarding social distancing measures. So that's a challenge in of itself. And a real kind of challenge from a leadership point of view is the fact that I'm kind of now working from home and have been for three weeks. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the infrastructure guys and the kind of sales team and customer service guys are, are kind of rotating, working from home or trying to... Uh, via satellite so that is kind of that, that's a challenge still kind of trying to oversee and maintain kind of personal relationships and making sure that people still feel um, integrated and part of a team when you, you kind of lose that face-to-face contact time that, that's been a challenge but um, yeah over overall kind of the, the business is kind of heading you know heading those challenges off one by one um, and the, the biggest change really is kind of the day-to-day um, difference, you know, kind of pre-coronavirus, kind of you could almost map out a week and there'd be challenges or, or things that you would encounter within that week. But that's now kind of almost moved to kind of almost like an hourly basis, more so than even daily, where things change very drastically regarding whether it be in the media or at a local level with people ringing in with self-isolation or family issues. So it's um, yeah, challenging, uh, challenging time. It certainly is, and um, it's really brought under the microscope the ability of business to be reactive as well, hasn't it? Striking that balance between proactivity, having plans in place, making decisions, and then being able to not necessarily roll with the punches, but make decisions based on changing guidelines. It's throwing up a real challenge for business leaders in this generation, isn't it? Certainly, I think. I think that's the key word there, Scott, you just mentioned is flexibility. I think everybody wants a plan and to be able to kind of work to that plan and be as prescriptive as possible and, and tick the things off on your checklist that you, you want to work through. Um, but, yeah, the kind of like last three weeks we've needed to try and be as flexible as possible. With flexibility is always a good thing, but this is kind of taking it to kind of, um, kind of really extreme levels where, we're kind of being flexible with kind of the service that we provide, how we provide it, um, whether it be kind of interactions or kind of medium. Um, 
order quantity, everything from a production viewpoint to a kind of uh, relationship viewpoint. Um, the more flexible we can be to work with clients and internal kind of customers with each other, the, the better really. Otherwise, it would be in real danger of kind of not being able to service internally and externally what we need to do. Mm, and Carl, have you ever experienced anything like this and had to make as challenging decisions as this? Because I know we had the global financial crisis 12 years ago, but this is very much new territory, isn't it? I would say, yeah, I, I kind of work through you know, red, wholesale redundancy programs and kind of challenging business scenarios. You know, like you said before, we, we've had re- recessions and, and the Brexit um, scenario. But I would say this is pretty much unprecedented, the, the kind of level of kind of scope and the kind of far-reaching nature of the restrictions and kind of the different things that people have got to work with and the fact that everybody is involved. There's, there's no one sector unaffected, whereas before there would be certain sectors that would kind of almost be able to, to, to sail on through different challenges and kind of that would be unaffected. This has kind of affected everybody from retail through to manufacturing through to kind of every kind of facet of um, of public life really has kind mm. of been affected. So whether it's you know, suppliers through to kind of to service providers to the workforce and the teams that you work with day to day, everybody's been affected. So every kind of level of decision making is it's just scrutinised in a different way. So I would say from my point of view, it's um, unprecedented. There's, there's some of the decisions that you're, you're having to make, um, you, you try and look on kind of past decisions that you've made, good, good, bad, or indifferent, and try and feed off them. And I would say this, this instance has kind of been, had to make more new decisions where there's not really a lot of data to take from, from prior decisions, more so than any point in my career. Absolutely. Um, it's um, it's important to, of course, make decisions and then sort of carry that through. It leads quite interestingly on to sort of a wider point about good leadership, because good leaders do have an experience of trying things, making decisions, making mistakes as well, and then learning from them. Do you think it's possible to actually be a good leader without having that learning curve at some point in your career? Um, I'll not from not from what I've seen. No, I've, I've yet to meet anyone as an effective leader or kind of successful person that's not made mistakes. Um, certainly, I've made plenty. I think every good manager or leader that I've kind of either worked directly with or that I've admired from afar have made mistakes. Some very public, some not so. Um, but now, I can't, without that grounding of kind of being face to face with kind of making wrong decisions, you've got to learn from them. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think that you can be successful without making mm. bad choices and bad decisions. I think how you handle the outcome from those bad decisions is key. But I don't think, I don't think it's possible to get to a leadership position and maintain it without without a backlog of of some mistakes. I can certainly see where you're uh, coming from there. Um, it's, it is important, of course, to try things to make errors and learn from those mistakes and have essentially a learning curve, a learning process. But there are some people out there who might think that great leaders are just born with certain qualities. And what would you say about that? I think, I think some people are born with kind of certain innate qualities, whether or not it be kind of like, you know, 
a certain kind of types of personality, persuasive types of personality that may kind of inflect, you know, their style of leadership. But I don't think that anyone comes fully formed. I think there's certain traits, but I think it may be that I've just not encountered them, but kind of, I think that certain things just have to be worked out. And even if it's kind of implicit or explicit, I think mistakes form a part of that. I don't think, I don't believe that good or great leaders are just born. I think that there's some learning process along the way, definitely. Um, I think that there will be certain things within that character that are there, but without that kind of learning journey and kind of and pathway, I don't believe they'd ever become great leaders without kind of picking things up along the way. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, there, Carl. And um, we talked a little bit earlier on about your personal response in times of crisis and your leadership style a little bit as well. Um, what would you say have been the big influences behind your own way of leading? Just the people that I've worked for and with in the past where, you know, you try and pick up traits that worked for you or that you saw having a positive influence on other people um, and also kind of identifying things that didn't work. I think is almost sometimes as or, or more important for me. You know, I've, I've worked in the past with, with leadership styles that were very kind of hands-on, kind of almost micromanagement level, very intense. Um, that, that just didn't work. Didn't work for me. Didn't work for the teams that I was around. So that's kind of that's inflected in me and kind of. How I try and lead people is I try and put as much trust in people as possible regarding tasks or kind of scope of responsibility um, and try and kind of guide and coach rather than kind of instruct and hands-on manage. Um, so so certainly certainly that would that would be a big thing. And then kind of from a, a, where I've picked up things that I like has been where people have been really clear communicators to me in the past where they've kind of laid out expectations about this is what I want and this is the level that I want you to get to. I think, you know, the kind of clear lines of communication for me are always really important. It was important for me when I was um, developing kind of um, leadership kind of traits or kind of in certain roles in my career. So that's what, again, I've tried to kind of take on board and, make it a part of, of how I lead. So I try and communicate early, clearly, um, so that there's accountability and but people know what is expected. It was important for me, and I struggled in the past when things weren't clear. I think when things are clear, you kind of, you kind of know where you're going, you know the pathway, and you know what is expected. So that, I would say they're, they're kind of key key things for me. I think it's really interesting as well how you've um, really taken that on board, learned from those experiences as well, Carl, and really taken that on throughout your career as well and use that to influence um, your own style. Um, I'm conscious of uh, running out of time, but before we do go about uh, wrapping things up um, here, Carl, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself for Angleboard and what you really hope to achieve in that time as a business, especially going through this outbreak and out of the other side. Well, I certainly think for the next the next kind of quarter, I think for us, is a level of kind of stabilisation, making sure that we position ourselves to, to service clients as well as we can and be flexible, like we spoke about, kind of whether it be products or services. <clears throat> and that will be the kind of focus for us is there will be certain long-term objectives that we effectively pause to try and get 
as we kind of work to get through the eight-week period, I think everybody's anticipating the kind of lockdown scenario to be. And then really from that, you kind of look at the kind of the landscape and move with the landscape, uh, try and stabilise, hit the targets that we that we work for at the start of the year, <clears throat> and kind of service service the sectors as well as we can. Um, but I think the key for us is not to try and just be okay coming out the side of it. We need to really still need to kind of push and aspire to put the things in place that we had at the start of the year. I think it would be a mistake to just think, well, if we can get through this, that will be enough. Um, that Just getting through this will not be enough. I think we need to still push to improve and hit targets and break targets as we get through this. So not just for kind of local metrics or kind of measures, but for the kind of industry that we sit in, I think it will be a mistake for, for us to just try and get through. Um, so the key thing for us is to kind of stabilise through the next eight weeks, look at the markets and kind of where we are through that, react accordingly, and then just kind of try and improve through the rest of the, that time period. I think there will be challenges. I think, unfortunately, some of our customers may fact um, face some real struggles, I think financially and operationally. Wherever possible, we need to help those guys. Um, I think the the industries across the board, from a packaging point of view through to the supply chain and customer base, could look drastically different. Um, I think from our point of view is rather than try and guess what is going to happen, we just try and position ourselves so that we can react with whichever way that it takes. Um, there will be challenges, but I think we just need to kind of prepare as best we can and then attack with as much force and vigour as we can as we get through it. Exactly right. Um, there will be challenges, but there will also be opportunities and business has to innovate. It has to improve in order to be able to seize on those challenges and hit the uh, the ground running. Um, Carl, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the uh, the programme today. And um, thank you very much for coming on to the programme for the benefit of the listeners. And I actually think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on in a few months just to look at this retrospectively and just see how those hopes have been borne out as well. No, yeah, that, that would be it. Thanks for having me on, Scott. And I, I, absolutely, I would uh, welcome a revisit. And then, yeah, we'll uh, see where we are at that point. It's fantastic to hear, and I'm glad that you've also enjoyed the experience. Um, coming up next on the programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. As well as scoring over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, Sir Jeff remains the only man to this day to score a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup following his treble in England's 40 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Jeff, and that's coming up now. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex, first team, 
when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, <laughs> I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you 
that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially with South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. he, in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time... At, Maybe overly strict, but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing. In, in the team, but uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. 
And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, mm. out. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's—I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who. 
who asked the question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> What a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, a laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but have I, to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely mm. 
you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. The wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team, the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, 
thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you completely focus, you're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go with the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.